heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders, elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Praise be to God. You have undoubtedly heard the phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not exactly the quote, right? Back in 1887, a guy named Lord Acton wrote to Bishop Creighton of the Catholic Church. He was writing this letter about how the Catholic Church treated its popes and its bishops who had uh, committed really immoral acts and how the church had in its histories um, kind of overlooked or skated over the immorality of its leadership and wasn't really honest about the character of the men who were in charge of the church. And so uh, Lord Acton was writing to Bishop Creighton uh, just to, to confront that issue and to say, look, you've got men leading in the church, and, and you guys love these men. You, you think that the office that they hold makes them holy. You think that just the office that they are in is what makes them righteous and sanctifies them. And then... Lord Acton gets to this quote. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority, still more when you superadd the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There's no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. So Lord Acton is saying, look, just because these men hold a certain office doesn't make them righteous, doesn't make them holy. Just because they sit in a certain position of power doesn't make them righteous or holy. In fact, Lord Acton argues, the fact of their power makes it more likely that they won't be holy. And when they have absolute power, as the Pope does, then the chances are that he's going to be the worst of men because he's got this unchecked power to rule and reign. Now, this is not a vindictive against the Catholic Church or against power in general. But broken, sinful human beings 
are all too often unworthy of the power that's handed to us. All too often, the power that we gain, even when we want to do good with it, ultimately ends up destroying us or others. Because we are, at the end of the day, sinful creatures. And our sinfulness makes us self-centered. Which means that when we get power, we more often than not want to use it to build up ourselves. We've seen this in the evangelical church countless times in the past decades. As we have watched the fall of leaders within the church who gained too much power, let it go to their head, and became authoritarians. And then these people go through a process, and sometimes they go through a process of restoration. They come back, and they're actually humble, and they're, they're qualified then to lead again. But sometimes they go through this process of restoration, and they come back worse than they were when they started because they have never had a check on the power that they used in a corrupted way. They've turned into authoritarians and, and they've abused the power and authority that they were given. But this doesn't happen only in the church. If it happens in the church where we have the Holy Spirit, where we have checks on our power and authority, if it happens within the church, how much more so does it happen in the world outside? How much more so is someone who's not connected to the gospel at all, not connected to the Holy Spirit at all, how much more are they likely to be corrupted by power and authority? And throughout history, world history is just a story over and over of how sinful, broken humanity has abused the power and authority that have been given to them to harm others. World history is really a story of fear and lust because our world runs on fear and lust. And that's what we're getting to here in Revelation 17 to 19 today. That's what these pictures in Revelation 17 to 19 are showing us, that our world is one that really runs on fear and lust. And it doesn't take much today to come to that conclusion. It doesn't take much investigation into the world to come to the conclusion that our world runs primarily on fear and lust. Authoritarians, dictators, they rule in terror. They wield their power in a way that makes their people fearful in order to hold on to their power and authority and position. Even within our own country, which is not authoritarian, not a dictatorship, we're not run on terror necessarily, and yet politicians can all too easily wield the power and authority that they hold to work fear in the people. Or if not that, then we see the, the culture of outrage and of fear-mongering rising up in the world, where, where news cycles and, and messaging is put out intended to make you afraid so that you will vote or act in a certain way to protect the things that are precious to you. Now, whether those fears are founded or not, whether they're legitimate or not, if they're going to make you act in a certain way, people will use your fear against you. They are manipulating the people with fear in order to consolidate power or in order to get a certain way or to get a certain policy. And this happens regardless of your political persuasion, okay? So if you're sitting in the audience right now or you're hearing us online right now and you're thinking, Yo, well, yeah, that's what the right does or yeah, that's what the left does, you're both wrong. Everybody does this. They, they amplify people's fears in order to get people to act in a certain way. And that is called manipulation. 
That's the kind of power that our world runs on. Manipulative, terrorizing power that gets people to act in a certain way so that some people can stay in authority. But we're also part of a world that's run by lust, by desires, by greed. Now, lust is not solely sexual. We lust over all kinds of things. We lust over the newest cars or houses or technology or relationships or people or status. We can lust over anything, and we do. We as human beings, we lust over everything. Lust drives envy and greed. It's our lust, our desire for things, our inordinate desire for things that leads us into envy and to pride and leads us to pursue things that are less than God, less than Christ. We live in a world that runs on fear and lust, and it always has. And that's the picture that we get here in Revelation chapter 17, when John sees this bizarre image of a woman dressed opulently. We're told immediately that she is a prostitute. And she is dressed in the finest of clothes, and she's wearing the finest of jewelry, and she's sitting in this seductive pose, riding on a beast, a terrifying beast, with ten heads and seven horns, or seven horns and ten heads, or something like that. She's riding on this beast with seven heads and ten horns. The beast, in fact, from Revelation chapter 13 the beast that is the Antichrist, the beast that is opposed to God, the beast that is one part of the unholy trinity that stands opposed to God. And so the beast here represents that power and that terror and that fear that cows people into submission while the woman is representing the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the people, longing for opulence and for wealth and for status and prestige and for sex. She's representing everything here that people desire while the beast represents every corrupt power of the earth. And they are wedded together in this unholy matrimony to stand opposed to God's people. We're told that the woman riding the beast is out in the wilderness. Do you remember another time in Revelation where there was a woman who was taken out to the wilderness? Back in Revelation chapter 12, the woman with 12 stars in her crown who represents the messianic community, the community of people who are looking for Jesus, looking for Christ. She is taken to the wilderness to be held and to be protected from the ravages of the dragon and the beasts. And here we have another woman in the wilderness who stands diametrically opposed to God's community, the God's people. This is the other woman. This is the adulterous woman riding the powerful beast. Now, I don't want to be sexist here, right? Because if, if the woman represents a certain kind of sexist view, then the beast represents a certain kind of sexist view of men. And so this is a marriage of sexist ideas, building up power and lust in order to corrupt the world and to deceive them into worshiping the dragon, Satan himself. Remember back in Revelation chapter 13 and 14 when we were talking about this unholy trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And here the beast is pointing back to the dragon. The beast and the woman, their job is to deceive the people into worshiping Satan, to worshiping the devil. Because if anybody sees the devil outright, if anybody sees the evil that is God's enemy outright, they're not going to follow him. But if 
the beast and the woman can, can dress up following the devil, if they can dress up following Satan, if they can dress up the worship of Satan to make it look like something desirable, to make it look like we can give you power and authority and wealth and opulence and we can fulfill your sexual desires, if they can make following the dragon seem like that, then they can deceive the whole world. And that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 17. The woman is riding the beast. Only we're told in, in those first verses and then in the following section that all of this opulence, all of this greed, all of this fear and lust is ultimately self-destructive. We're told that the beast hates the woman. The beast turns on the woman and wants to kill her. But because they're in this unholy marriage deceiving the nations, he can't. He doesn't. And then this angel who's, who's leading John around and showing him all this stuff in the heavenly realms and kind of explaining to him the mystery of what's happening explains the imagery of the woman and of the beast. Now, there's a lot of details here, and they're very confusing. You need to know just a couple of things. This is all symbolic language, as we've been talking all through Revelation. This is not literal language. And so even when they say there have been five kings before, and now there's a king, and there's one to come, and then the beast is an eighth king, you're not supposed to count rulers through history and try and figure out where you are in history and what ruler you're under and name these five and six and seven and eight rulers. That's not the idea here. The idea is that you're nearing the end. Right? That there have been five kings before, and now there's a king, and then there's one to come. The whole point is, in the span of history, in the span of world history, and of the, the evil dominion of these kings of the earth, we're, we're nearing the end. We're getting close. Jesus is going to come back soon. That's the main thrust of it. Whatever the particulars of each of these individual items means, the main thrust here is, you're getting toward the end. Fear not. You don't have five more wicked kings to go through. And we read that this woman has on her head the name Babylon. In scripture, Babylon is always a stand-in for the evil empires and powers of the world. Babylon is always a stand-in for the wicked powers and authorities of humanity. And so here, Babylon represents Rome the power of Rome, the authority of Rome, Rome which is oppressing the Christian community. And so here, John's original readers are supposed to read this and go, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's Rome. That's the emperor Diocletian, or that's the emperor Vespasian, or that's the emperor Caligula, or, or whatever Roman ruler happens to be there at the time. They're supposed to read this and go, yeah, I know who Babylon is. And this is to work up hope within them that though they suffer for now under the thumb of Rome, which delights in fearful power and opulent lust, though they suffer for now, they are to maintain their faithfulness to Christ because Rome will not last. Their suffering will not last. And that ultimately, the lust and the terror that make Rome powerful and look glorious and look beautiful will self-destruct. They are their own destruction. The lusts of the world, terrorizing power, fear-mongering, these are all self-destructive. This is why we must, must, must reject them. We must, as followers of Jesus, as a community, say, we have no place for fear-mongering in our world. 
We have no place for fear-mongering in our culture. We have no place for lust after all of the opulence and things of the world. We have no place for those things because we know that they only lead to destruction. The beast hates the woman and wants to kill her, but is in this unholy marriage of power and of opulence. And when we seek after all the things of the world, when we try to go after the good life as defined by Twitter and by the magazines and by media, when we try to seek all of the trappings of opulence, when we pursue our lusts or we pursue fearful manipulation and power, we're working toward our own destruction. We're wedding ourselves to this woman and beast. We're wedding ourselves to Babylon. And to wed yourself to Babylon is to wed yourself to the enemy of God, the dragon himself, the devil, Satan. And so we we must rightly reject the lusts of the world. We must rightly reject a culture of fear. We must rightly reject the culture that says, you're not anything if you don't have X. Because if we have Christ, we have victory, we have riches, we have power, we have authority. And only in Christ are our desires truly and rightly fulfilled. Only in Christ can we actually wield power and authority and influence in a righteous and holy way. Because only Christ has modeled for us and empowers us to live as God has called us to live. Only in Jesus can we live rightly. And we see this happen in chapter 18 as the world mourns the fall of Babylon. So here's one thing I love about Revelation. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. And the more that I read Revelation, the more I love this. There are actually no wars or battles in Revelation. We see in multiple places the enemies of God muster for war. We see the angels telling John that the enemies of God are getting ready for battle. They're mustering at Megiddo, which is Armageddon, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Here in chapter 17 and 18, we see the enemies of God mustering for battle. The peoples of the nations, all of the people who follow the woman and the beast, all of the people whose loyalty and allegiance is given to the kings of the earth, they all muster for war against God. But no battle ever takes place. Why? Because God doesn't have to even fight them. In every case, the, the enemies of God muster for battle, and then Jesus comes back, and they're, they're gone. They're done. There's nothing more. There's no, like, there's no like war scene. Now, we're going to see in chapter 19 next week the, the final victory of Jesus when Jesus does come back with the sword coming from his mouth, and he defeats his enemies. But at no point do we have a battle scene where God is coming and struggling or fighting against, because God doesn't have to. There's no power or authority in this world that can hold a candle to God's power and authority. There is no power or authority in this world that can actually be any real threat to our God. It's not possible. You can't muster enough power. You can't muster enough people. You can't muster an army big enough to take down God God who created the world with a word. God who created human beings by breathing life into them. God who holds all of creation and all of life in the palm of his hand can simply snuff it out should he so choose. 
There's no struggle on God's part. There's no struggle on his behalf. He doesn't have to bring war against the enemies of God. He simply comes with the words of his judgment, as we'll see next week. And that's what's being declared over Babylon here in chapter 18. The angels are singing that God has brought his judgment upon Babylon, and Babylon is falling. That is the evil, wicked powers and authorities of the earth which are opposed to Christ and his church are done. They're down. They're defeated. They're beaten. Jesus has won. And we see that when God brings his judgment against Babylon, the kings of the earth, everybody who had allegiance to Babylon, they're weeping and they're wailing and they're mourning. And we say, we read over and over that the merchants of the world, which were made rich by Babylon, buying up their wares, fulfilling the lust for wealth, that the merchants cry and weep for the wealth that they've lost as Babylon is falling. And they refuse to repent, even seeing the judgment of God, even seeing the self-destruction of fear and of lust, they weep and wail and mourn because their desires are not rightly ordered. They weep and wail and mourn because their lusts are for everything but the God who made them. They weep and wail and mourn for the loss of their power and their influence because now they can't wield it to manipulate anyone anymore. They're no longer in charge. They've lost their power and they're broken up over it. But still, they fail to see. They fail to see that their power and their lusts were in the wrong place. That they were desiring for the wrong things. They fail to see that whatever wealth, whatever authority, whatever influence they could wield apart from Jesus is totally eclipsed by the riches that are ours through Jesus Christ. When we turn to the world, when we, when we invest our time and our efforts and our money and our energies into anything less than Jesus, anything less than God, if we pursue anything less than a full relationship with the living God, when we pursue anything less than the wholeness and the riches that are ours through Jesus Christ, we are throwing away our efforts. Because nothing we can gain by the work of our hands, nothing we can gain by pursuing the lusts of our flesh, nothing we can gain by tr pursuing power and influence in this world can hold a candle to what Jesus has already given us, to what is ours through Christ, the victory that belongs to ours, the riches that belong to us, eternal life. Nothing we can go after is anything like what Jesus offers us. And that's what the saints celebrate at the beginning of chapter 19. We see the, the reactions of the two groups of people. The reaction first of the people who are opposed to Christ, who are opposed to God, who weep and wail and mourn because Babylon has fallen and they're losing their wealth and they're losing the objects of their lust and they're losing the things that they've desired more than Christ. And then in 19, we see the reaction of the saints. We see the response of heaven to the victory of Jesus. And we see here the bride of Christ descending where all of the desires of the saints, all the desires of those who would follow Jesus are fulfilled at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. 
You ever been to a really great wedding? I mean, like a really, really good wedding. If you've been to many weddings, you probably have one or two that stand out in your mind, besides your own, okay? Granted, your own is the best wedding you will have ever been to, okay? But if you've ever been to another wedding or, a bu- or many weddings, you'll have one or two that really stand out in your mind as just really just amazing events, amazing times, right? The food was fan- fabulous. The couple looked incredible. The people were awesome. The dancing was amazing. I'm not a dancer. We didn't even have dancing at my wedding. I'm sorry, Beth. But, but for those who like dancing, right, the dancing was incredible. We went to a wedding in North Carolina for Beth's cousin, and it was absolutely beautiful. It was in the mountains. It was at this gorgeous kind of inn and conference center place um, that was kind of half outdoor, half indoor, and it was rustic, and it was gorgeous, and uh, the, the whole floor turned into a dance floor, and Maggie was like two, and she was cutting a rug, man. She was going hard after it, and that, I've been to a number of weddings, and some of them stand out in my mind. That will always be my favorite wedding. Besides getting to meet a bunch of relatives that I had never met before, it was just a beautiful, wonderful time, and my daughter so enjoyed being there and dancing and just going wild. And we could trust that she was cared for and we didn't have to keep like a perfect eye on her because we had family people around to watch her and to be there. And it was, it was amazing. It was incredible. And you don't want the party to end, right? When you're in a real gathering like that, when you're in a real, really a beautiful, amazing party time, you don't want it to end. You just want it to go on and on and on. And here in chapter 19, at the beginning of chapter 19, we have the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast of Jesus. Everything that followers of Jesus have been waiting for, everything they've been hoping for, this is the party that never ends. This is that wedding feast, that wedding banquet that just goes on and on and on and on, and you never get tired of it, and you never get sick of it, and there's dancing, and there's music, and there's joy, and there's feasting, and you'll never get full. I mean, really... That's, that's my idea of a great party, right? I go to a party, and I can eat and eat and eat and never get full and never get fat. That's, that's a good life right there, right? That's the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? You go, and, and there's feasting for all eternity, and there's dancing, and there's joy, and you are in this place with millions of family members, none of whom annoy you or get on your nerves, all of whom are perfectly righteous and holy, whom you love more deeply than you could love your own children. That's the future that awaits followers of Jesus. And what in this world could compare to that? What on earth could you or I go after in this life that would compare to that future? What could we want that would be more than that? That's the future that awaits every follower of Jesus. That is the future that awaits those who live into the victory of Jesus over Babylon. Man, you can pursue Babylon all you want. You can pursue wealth and power and manipulation. You can pursue all the lusts that you want. And then when you die, it's done. It's over. There's no more. And what will it have been worth? What will you have gained? Jesus himself said, What does it gain you? What does it benefit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? I would take poverty and destitution and brokenness and illness. I would take every pain of this 
earth to enjoy this wedding feast with Jesus for all eternity. I would gladly trade whatever I gain in this world for this life with Christ. And through church history, that is exactly the calculation that many Christians have had to make. Today, that is exactly the calculation that so many followers of Jesus must make in the world because they don't get to live in a place where they can go and gather freely and worship freely. They don't get to live in a place where, you know, you're a Christian, that's great, that's cool, whatever, and it's no big deal to other people around you. For today, millions of our brothers and sisters live in places where the calculation they have to make is, am I going to be destitute and broken and put down in this life so I can enjoy the wedding feast? Or am I going to compromise and am I going to enjoy this life but lose out on eternity with Christ and my family? You know, you and I, we're so blessed. We're so privileged. I'm not going to say blessed. We're so privileged. We don't have to make that calculation. I mean, maybe you have, and if you have, I honor you, and I want to hear your story, but realistically, here in the United States, I doubt any of us have ever had to make that kind of choice, whether we were going to miss out on our family or on well-being or even on health, whether we were going to miss out on life right now to trade for eternity with Christ. Most of us in this room get both. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we're using the blessings and the privileges that we've been given to glorify Jesus and honor Him and help our brothers and sisters who don't live in that kind of privilege, who don't live in that kind of place. But the question for us, we who have never had to make that calculation between life here and life eternal, we who have never had to calculate, am I going to live a fairly comfortable life now and miss out on heaven, or am I going to live in destitution and poverty now and pursue Jesus? For us, we have to ask ourselves, we have to be extra careful and ask ourselves, what am I pursuing more than Christ? What have I been pursuing more than Jesus? Have I, in fact, been pursuing Babylon? Have I been pursuing the woman and the beast? Have I been after wealth and riches? We have to look at our bank accounts and ask, where's my money going? Is it going to things that make my life more comfortable or is it going to things that build up the kingdom of God? We have to look at our homes, the things we own. We have to look at the time we spend and the conversations we have. Are we talking more about Jesus than other things? Are we spending time with our kids, building them up and training them and teaching them to walk in the ways of Christ? Are we investing our time in our brothers and sisters now? Are we seeking to alleviate the poverty and brokenness of our brothers and sisters who are suffering right around us? How are we using the resources that God has put into our hands? Because we live in this privileged place where we don't have to choose between our lives and following Jesus. And that gives us a greater responsibility to use the many blessings and the many gifts that we've received in order to follow Jesus And so this text, I think, calls me to a self-evaluation. It puts before me these two paths, Babylon or Jesus. And it forces me to ask, am I spending more time pursuing Babylon or Jesus? Am I spending more time pursuing the wealth and pursuits of the world or pursuing wholeness with Christ? 
my relationship with Jesus? Am I pursuing a path that tries to make the world into Babylon? Or am I pursuing a path that tries to make the world into the kingdom of God with Jesus ruling and reigning? That's a question we all have to ask, and that's the question that this text brings right to the front of our minds. And so I leave you with that. I leave you with that question. As we partake of the body and blood of Jesus, as we now come to this table and we hold up the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we are reminded that Christ gave all for us. That God on high came to earth and lived as you and me. God, the author of life, experienced death on our behalf so that we could have a seat at that wedding banquet. So that we could enjoy that eternal party with Christ and our brothers and sisters. That is why He has come And so when we come to this table and we partake of this body and blood, we are reminding ourselves of all that Jesus gave in order to give us a seat at the table. We are reminding ourselves that though so often we hold back from God, God held nothing back for us. And we are taking into ourselves the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I need this moment. And I hope you do too. Because as I evaluate that question of which path am I going to follow, am I following the path of Babylon or am I following the path of Christ, it is this moment, it is this table, it is this body and blood that remind me of the great sacrifice that Jesus made for me and remind me that no matter what I do, nothing I do could earn or merit that sacrifice. And that what Jesus gives me is greater than anything I could gain on my own. That's why we come to this table, and that's why we partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When we do this, something happens. Something spiritual happens. Christ is present in this moment with us, and this is why we do this as a family, because we declare that He has bought us as a family and as individuals to walk with one another, to keep pushing one another on and and pointing one another to that road of Christ and Christ's likeness in everything that we do. And so I invite you now, you've probably already opened your thingy, I invite you now to take the bread. When Jesus had given thanks, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood of the covenant shed for you. Take and drink. As often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and who he is for us. And now as the band makes their way up, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing the doxology with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new ones. 